Hey, thanks so much for listening to this message. My name is Jason, and I'm one of the ministers here at the Madison Church of Christ. It's our hope and prayer that the teaching from God's Word you hear today will bless your life and draw you closer to Him. If you're ever in the Madison, Alabama area, we'd love for you to worship with us on Sundays at 8.30 or 10.30 a.m. If you have any other questions about the Bible or want to know more about the Madison Church, find us at madisonchurch.org. Be sure to also check out our Bible study podcast, Madison Church of Christ Bible Studies. Thanks again for stopping by. Good morning, everyone. Glad to see all of you with us. Excited to be here on Sunday morning. It's, it's weird to not have my spit crew here, you know, the guys that I normally kind of fire at right here on the front row. All of our teens are at a uh, couple of retreats this weekend, so we miss them, miss their voices, miss their presence, and I miss a target, you know, like over here. So, uh, you know, hate that they're gone, but we'll, we look forward to seeing them back here this afternoon sometime, and we'll hear about their retreat. Great time to be together. I think we overlook sometimes the blessing that we have here in our youth ministry and the guys who serve with us and who work so diligently to prepare weekends like this where we can get somewhere, get isolated, be thinking about spiritual things, encourage our our teens to make changes in their lives. And, you know, a lot of times we see the fruits of that labor. We see them changing as they come back. And it's really good for us to watch that. Uh, I think for all of us to be reminded that we ourselves can change as adults. Sometimes we get sort of stuck in our routines and our ruts, and it's important, I think, that we recognize the malleability, the ability to change and to, to be shaped by what God wants us to be. We're continuing, and actually we're growing close to the end of this uh, series. As Jason mentioned, the unlikely heroes, we studied the judges and some of the kings, and today we are talking about Solomon. And I don't know where you guys go in your mind. I think about wisdom, I think about wealth, and a lot of those kinds of things with Solomon. But this is what I actually think of when I think about him is the game Monopoly. Now, if you want to go and waste three hours of your life, go ahead and play this game. It's, it, you know, I'm sure it's fun. Uh, a lot of people do. I am not one who enjoys this game, although I've played it several times, you know, and like smiled through it. <laughs> this is fun. But, but I, have, I have done this. And, you know, really, the, if you look at the object of this game is, is basically this. Everybody gets the same thing. Uh, you roll that dice and it, it takes you around this board. You get the same money from the bank, you know, and then everybody starts brand new. But, but what happens is as, as you begin playing the game, your ability to discern what is the right thing to do at the right time, when is the time to purchase a certain property, when is the right time to, to put, you know, an apartment on that or a, or, a, or a house on that where you can charge rent to people. And, and what happens is as you are manipulating that money and, and investing and you're, you're being careful about the things that you purchase and what you, what you do as you're going around, uh, what happens is little by little people start getting picked off because you're taking all of their wealth. And so the object of the game is, right, what, to to get more than everybody else and to look at them and be like, <laughs> I just took you for everything. And the thing is, it's, it's, it may be fun for you to play that game, but we, we even say the phrase, it's like monopoly money, right? Because there's no real investment from you. It's not like you're taking those risks with your belongings, your possessions, and those kinds of things. You're given a certain amount of things, and it's up to you to be discerning and wise about how to use those things. Well, that's the story of Solomon in a nutshell, right? I mean, this is a guy who was kind of born with that silver spoon. He's born with the opportunity to have, you know, innumerable things and resources at his fingertips. And it's about his wisdom and discernment and how he uses those things. And so what we're going to do is talk a little bit about him and, and, and get kind of into his story a little bit. Now, I'm going to... 
to use an expression of Mike Winkler, I'm going to say this. We're going Mach 6 hair on fire, okay? We're going to run through a lot of this. Because as you look at these kings and judges, some of them are very, you know, there's very few things that are written about them. And you gain some insight about those things and you kind of dig into them. Well, Solomon, there's no shortage of things that are written about him. But it is important for us to maybe try to gel those things down and try to find a way to, to pile all that we know about him together uh, using all the resources that we have in the scriptures, and there's lots of it. So we're going to do that today. And that's the first thing to do is to kind of set up the situation. David's time is coming to an end, and he is recount, recounting a conversation or at least a message that he's received from God that, that his son is going to be the one who is going to build the temple of God. And so he, he, he is told this, and he is he's sharing this story, and he says, His name shall be Solomon, and I'll give him peace and quiet to Israel in his days, and he shall build a house for my name. So he's talking about this, and, you know, when you think about it, we heard it in the Scripture reading this morning from Ronnie that, you know, David really intended on building the temple, bringing the Ark of the Covenant back and restoring that temple worship and giving it a permanent place. But God said, you've got a lot of bloodshed on your hands. So as a result, I'm going to give a sense of prosperity. I don't don't want people maybe to think about those kind of military days as much as I want them to think about rest and peace that is given in God. And so Solomon was chosen to be that son who would lead them. So this is something that's important. Building the temple was one of the main things that Solomon came into the kingship for. And it says Solomon loved the Lord. And this is great because as you read this text, you may get, you know, kind of an idea that that he had some divided allegiances as you read this. Because so many of the kings and judges that we talked about, when they would go up to these high places to worship, they were going up to a place for idolatrous behaviors. But sometimes those places were used actually because representatively they were high places that got you closer to God. Well, it seems that Solomon offered thousands of burnt offerings up at these places and he did it specifically to God. So his heart was devoted totally to God. And that's a, that's a beautiful thing and a great thing. And so what happens is at Gibeah, which is one of these uh, high places, or Gibeon, uh, what you see is God has appeared to him in a dream. And, you know, because Solomon loved God and walked in his ways and kind of followed the pattern of his father in doing the right things, God said, ask what I shall give you. Now just think for a moment what that would be like if God just said, hey, what is it that you want? And I know we, we pray to God, right, for the things that we want and need and those kinds of things. But here is God saying, hey, what is it that you really want? What's the most important thing that you could, could gather? And I think all of us, you know, would love that question to be asked. Us, what, if I could just pick something, what would I, what would I pick? And so it's, it's kind of interesting as he would ask that. This is a picture, isn't it, of God's grace. He's already given us everything that we really need in life. He's provided salvation for us through Jesus. It's up to us to lay hold of that. But he's already put this, these things out in front of him, and, he's, and Solomon's already been given, you know, innumerable resources already. Uh, and so what is it that this guy may want? And when he answers this, I want you to see what is revealed about Solomon as we think about him. He says, you know, I, I'm, I'm coming into this king thing, but, but the reality is I just feel like I'm a little child. I just don't feel like I have the ability to know how to come and go. Like, how, how is it that I can handle this, this reality of being the king? Like, he's, he's really, if you think about it, Solomon has everything he could have ever wanted. He, he's probably been told how amazing he is all of his life. And in this moment, instead of buying into that and believing it, there seems to be fear and insecurity that creeps in. So he says, I'm a little child. And I think 
this is something that maybe all of us have in our lives at times, is sometimes it's just that moment where the job that we have or the thing that we've been given, the role that we've been bestowed, is just a little bit too much at that time in our life. And, and I, I've felt that so many times, I can't even tell you. And I know there are probably some of you, I know, because I hear from some of you, that in your job or in the place, in the role that you fulfill right now, sometimes there's things coming and going at you and, and, and you're doing a good job, or at least you think you're doing the best you can. You're working hard and you're putting in the hours. And there may be things that are confusing to you, things that are overwhelming. There may be successes that you have and failures that you have, and you may look and not have any idea what brought the success and what brought the failure, you know? I mean, and that's the truth sometimes about work, isn't it, that, that we do that. And I think in this situation, Solomon is looking at what his father was and recognizing that the role that he is about to fulfill is huge. He says, it just seems too much. But what do we do in those situations? Here's, here's a situation, too. And I, I, I think it's one thing for Solomon to feel the insecurity and feel the struggles of that. But then I look around, and it seems to me that David also has this idea that he's not quite ready because it says, my son is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent of fame and glory throughout all the lands. Hey, no pressure, man. We're just talking about building the, the biggest thing that's ever been seen before and the most majestic thing that will ever be seen. Uh, and so it's no big deal. I've just got all this stuff ready for you. In fact, David goes on to say, with great pains, I have provided all these things. So I don't know what you're doing right now, but if you're Solomon, are you identifying with what's about to happen? Like, you see all this, and David's like, hey, no big deal. You ever had someone come to you at your job, and you're already like, you feel like you're like right here, just as hard as you can go, and then someone says, hey, guess what? You've done such a great job. Here's another pile of stuff that I want you to manage. It's great that I've already given it to you. It's good. And you find yourself just completely overwhelmed. And I know when we read these lists, it's hard for us to imagine, what is this? Like, what is a thousand talents of gold and a million talents of silver? It sounds like a lot, right? Well, in reality, this is it. What David is saying, I have collected for you, that you are going to have to add to this, is this. 7,500 pounds of gold, 75 million pounds of silver, bronze and iron beyond weighing, as well as timber and stone. He's saying, I got all this junk over here for you to manage as well. Like, it's... This is overwhelming, right? And I know that you, you were thinking to yourself, this is tough. But then he looks at him and says, arise and work. The Lord be with you. It's one of those go get them, tiger moments, right? And, I, you know, I, I don't know how you're feeling right now, but I'm anxious just thinking about the magnificence of what is coming, the pressure of doing the right thing, right? And so that's sort of what you see here. It's like, hey, I'm, I'm feeling not just a little bit overwhelmed, but maybe, you know, kind of out of place and maybe not in the right spot at this time so how many of us feel this way from time to time I think what you see on the screen is is a pretty good standard advice if you were to go to counseling and you were talk about being overwhelmed I think you'd see some of these things I mean it's it's things like first of all pray to God I mean if you talk to a good Christian counselor they're going to say hey have you given these things over to God yet are these pressures these these things that you're feeling have you have you taken the time to pray to God and ask for his guidance and to help you through this are you getting good rest are you are you determining what your sleep pattern is going to be you know I have a Fitbit I look at it every day to see how I slept last night, and, you know, I, I measure it in how many minutes of deep sleep did I get, and it's really not much sometimes, and so I can't force myself to get that deep sleep. I mean, I can take melatonin, and I can do some other things to try to, you know, help me to get a little bit deeper in my sleep, but, but reality is I can't fashion that sleep pattern the way I want to, but what I can determine is when I go to bed and when I wake up, 
right? And so you can train your body to learn to expect certain things at certain times of the day, and you can kind of build a, a routine that helps your body. You, you know, what, what you do to exercise and what you do diet-wise matters. I mean, uh, you know, outside of the pain of the struggle of exercise, the body is flushed with endorphins, and it makes you feel good. It makes you feel great. It gives you this sense of accomplishment and refreshment. What you, when you eat, it makes you feel better. It makes you feel restored and, and whole, right? So those things are all great, and all those things are wonderful, and let God direct you, right? Those are great things. But what is it that Solomon says? Again, given this question, feeling being overwhelmed, feeling like I'm not maybe ready for this. He says, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. Wow. You got anything you could ask for, Solomon, and and this is what you do? And I'm so proud of him. And I I think when you look at this, it's like, wow, he kind of has like the bigger picture at play here. I'm overwhelmed. I don't know what to do. Maybe if I had God's mind to be able to sift through all this and govern these people and know right from wrong, maybe that will help me along the way. And so he asked for this. And here's the the deal. He, He doesn't look for the physical blessings. Solomon in this moment is a very spiritually minded person, and he's asking for God to illuminate in his mind what is that good, what is that most important thing, what is the righteous thing to do, what is wise and discerning. And so here it is, God's pleased with it. Wouldn't we all love to have it written about us that something that we chose to do really pleased God? Uh, This to to me is a, a fascinating statement, right? This pleased the Lord so much. I mean, God is in heaven going, wow, way to go, Solomon. That's, that's amazing. So he says, behold, I will give you wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall rise again. This is amazing. Like he's going to give him an extra measure of wisdom to where he speaks. It's going to be beautiful. In fact, it reminds me of what was said about Jesus. Remember he said he spoke as one who had authority. Everybody listened to him and were mesmerized by what he had to say. And that seems to be the direction that this is all heading with him. Solomon really, he realized what so many of us fail to catch sometimes, and that is this. He had all these other things, but in reality, if you have God, you have everything. And I think sometimes we, because we're earthly-minded people, we, we get fixated on the things of here and now that we, we miss this boat altogether. And he caught this very beautifully. But here's the thing. God was not just good to him in giving him what he asked for, but he also poured it on even more. It says, I'll give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all of your days. And then he says this, and this is important for us today. It's not bolded up here, but it should be. Here's the thing. If you'll just do what I'm saying, if you'll follow my commands, if you'll trust in me, if you'll give your heart fully to me, not only will I give you all the wisdom, not only will I give you all these possessions, not only will I give you all this wealth, what I will give you is a lengthened days. Like meaning I will, I will expand your influence in ways that you can't imagine. So God gives us big, right? He gives to us in ways that we can't imagine. I'm reminded of that passage in James where it says, you know, you, ask, you, you have not because, what, you ask not in faith. And so here he is asking for the things that are most important. And God not only rewards him for the things that he's looking for spiritually, but also for the things that he needs physically. Pretty awesome. So God gave him wisdom and understanding beyond measure. And his wisdom, it said, and I'm, I'm assuming these are, uh, 
you know, there's really not time to dig into those guys, but these must be the wise souls of the day. These are the, these are the celebrities in wisdom land, I guess. And, and it says that his, his wisdom surpassed all of them, so much so that there's a person who, uh, who are two people who brought a, a problem to him. And you will probably remember this if you've studied Solomon. This is one of those things that, that we use and point to as an example of his wisdom. Two women both have, have small children. Uh, they are both sleeping with their children. They're both nursing. One of them actually suffocates the other child, essentially. And so that mother wakes up and sees that the baby is dead, goes to the other room and gets the other lady's alive baby and swaps them out. And the next day the mother wakes up and she sees that her baby is dead, but it doesn't look like her child. And so she looks over at the other woman and says, that's my child, and your child is dead, my child is alive. And so they get into this big dispute, and these, these women are fighting back and forth, and they ultimately bring them to Solomon. And Solomon, after listening to them for a while, does what? Go get me a sword. Let's cut the baby in two. You can have one half, and, and she can have the other half. And the mother speaks up and says, no, 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 no. Do not lay a hand on that child. Do not cut it apart. Do not harm the child in any way. What has it done to deserve that? And Solomon says, well, there's your mother. Right? It was that expression of wisdom and discernment. Maybe stuff that they had not seen before, that kind of approach and problem solving had to only come from the wisdom that God alone could provide. So this is an awesome thing, but what else does he, does with, does he do with the wisdom? Well, we read in 1 Kings chapter 4 that he wrote 3,000 Proverbs and that he also wrote 1,005 songs. So he has the skill set of his father as well. He's a bit of a lyricist. He, he can uh, smooth out some songs and he can write some things that are really clever. And so he does that. And it says all the people wanted to come and hear about his wisdom. So how awesome is Solomon in this moment? Turns out that this queen of Sheba comes and visits him, and, and, and as she's doing so, she brings like a list of a, a bunch of questions, things that maybe she's just troubled by or things that she doesn't have answers for, and she brings all those to Solomon, and, and the reality is he's got such wisdom that none of those things were a problem to him. He gave her the answers that she needed, and she was very satisfied with that. But not only as she's looking and observing his wisdom, she looks and also sees the various things that he's got around him. Not only is he wise, but she notices the beautiful palace, the food at the table, the officials, the servants, the good clothes, the parties, the sacrifices, and everything that she saw around the temple. And it says she was so amazed. I love this. It took her breath away. Isn't that awesome? She was blown away at who Solomon is. Now, you think about this for just a moment. And what it might do to you as you're kind of hearing all these people come and praise you. Well, another thing that we know about him is that in these Proverbs, and we, we have the book of Proverbs that's in the Scriptures. There's 915 verses in there. And if you read all of them, you're going to see, I don't know how many, countless Proverbs. Things that are, that are expressions of wisdom. Things that are help give us insight into the way God thinks. How we can pursue him. How we can look for uh, virtue. And how we can learn to be generous. And how we can build relationships. It's just one saying after another that builds upon almost every aspect of life, whether it be your relationships or how to manage your wealth, how to deal with uh, people who are unruly, uh, how, to, how to love a friend, those kinds of things. All of those things are wrapped up in the Proverbs, and it's just a really valuable thing. So Solomon took his wisdom and used it really in powerful ways. But again, there were some struggles with that because ultimately we get to the book of Ecclesiastes. 
And if you think about Ecclesiastes, I, I want you to understand something. Solomon decided that he was going to do kind of these, this life experiment, okay? And Solomon, prior to Ecclesiastes, is a person who is very spiritually minded. But along the way, he's starting to, it, it feels like at least, grow in his arrogance, grow in his self-awareness of his awesomeness. And, and to the point where I think maybe it clouds his wisdom and his vision, and he's not able to see things as clearly and so what he does is he's looking around and he's, he says, I want to talk about life here on earth. Instead of thinking about things that are spiritual, he gets really down to what is this life all about? What do we do here in this life to gain fulfillment and success and prosperity and those kinds of things? And so the book of Ecclesiastes is written as a journal, so to speak, of those life experiments that he's, that he's taking on. So Ecclesiastes means one who shares in the assembly. It's almost like him gathering everybody together and saying, okay, let me, let me lay some truth on top of you. Let me, let me give you some insight into life here on earth. And he calls himself or refers to himself as the preacher. And in this context, it means someone who like gathers a lot of different philosophical thinkings and he puts those things together and expresses them. And so that's what he's a searcher of the right way of life. And so you're going to see in this book a couple of phrases. The first one is under the sun. And what that's referring to is everything that happens here on the tangible material world, what we can touch and see and feel and experience. And then the other uh, term that's used is vanity of vanities. And it literally means like, like a, a puff of smoke or a vapor of air, it, a, a, a little small wind. The idea is that you can look and you can see smoke and you can see that, that cloud of smoke coming your way and it can look and feel almost like something that is, you know, that you can touch, but when you reach into it, what happens? It all just kind of disappears. The idea here in Ecclesiastes is he's, he's kind of pairing up a couple of things. One is life is temporary, like we're all going to end in the same place. And then there's, there's all these things that we grasp for that we try to hold on to here in this life, and they ultimately end in emptiness. And so you're going to see these phrases multiple times, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He's just saying it's chasing the wind. It's trying to grasp at things that you can't tangibly touch. And the things that are under the sun are the things that we do here in this life that seem futile because they really don't lead us to anything eternal. And so he gets into this writing, and he shares with us a lot of things. And what I've done is tried to gel it down into five things. There's a bunch more, and preachers love alliteration, so here you go. Wisdom, wine, work, women, and wealth. Okay, and he tries all of these different things to help, help the person who is reading understand what we try to pursue here in life to bring us that, that happiness and fulfillment in life. And he starts with wisdom. And so Proverbs has got a couple of these great nuggets, and you guys probably have your own favorite Proverbs. I mean, for me, it's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I've shared that with you before. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he'll make your path straight. I love that. I think it's a great proverb for every part of your life. But here are some others. You know, beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. And how much better to get wisdom than gold and good judgment than silver? And where there is strife, there's pride. But wisdom is found in those who take advice. He's saying, hey, wisdom is to be found out there, even on the earthly level. Like, there's, there's things that, that make us wise and those kinds of things. But, but understand, this is a different context. It's not a spiritual way of thinking. He's talking about just learning things from different people and getting insight, which is helpful but not necessarily eternal. So here he is in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, speaking of himself, and he says, You are by far the wisest person that has ever lived in Jerusalem. 
You are eager to learn, and you have learned a lot. Isn't that great? He's like, I am good enough, I'm smart enough, and people love me, right? And he says all of this is senseless chasing of the wind. Why is that? Because he sees the wisdom compared to foolishness and how these people are all ending up sort of in the same place. He says the more you know, the more you hurt. The more you understand, the more you suffer. So getting insight, getting wisdom, getting experience in life does not always equate with an easy way or something successful in life. It it really ends up in the same place often as people who deal in foolishness. And so wisdom is not necessarily something that, that you can come to that gets you like the end all, especially worldly wisdom. So then he moves on over into wine and pleasure. And, and wine is used as a, a symbol of anything that's self-indulgent, okay? Something that we escape to or that we use in our lives as a fix for something that, that we feel like may be fixing a void in our lives, okay? So he says, laughter is silly. What does it do to seek pleasure? He says, after much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine while still seeking wisdom. Catch this. Did you, did you catch the weirdo thing of that? Like, I decided to cheer myself with wine while still seeking wisdom, right? Those, those two things don't really go together, do they? And he says, what I ultimately ended up with when I thought wisdom and wine sort of mixed together to bring me wisdom, what I did is I actually clutched onto foolishness. And I hear this sometimes from people. And I'm not talking about people in this room. I, I pray not. But I hear from people sometimes that say, well, I drink so I can escape the reality of my life. I, I, I drink so I can forget what bad news I heard today. I, I drink so I can feel good for just a few minutes of my life. But guess what happens? One, if you get that inebriated and that, uh, you know, thrown off so much, you, you could end up in a place that's really dangerous for you. But let's just say that you wake up in a place that's, that's safe. What happens? What you had before is still there with you. It's not gone away because you indulged in those things. So forget that it's wine, whatever it may be that you're, you're choosing to go after to self-indulge and to, to bring yourself pleasure. Those kinds of things ultimately end up in emptiness. And these are not my words, but this is the words of the wise man. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler. Catch this. Whoever is led astray by it is not wise. He goes on to say, who is it that has anguish and who has sorrow? Who's always fighting? Who's always complaining? Who's always has unnecessary bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? Is it not the one who spends long hours in the tavern trying out new drinks? Do you catch it? If that's what you're seeking in life, and if that is all that you have here in this life to bring you joy, whether it's at a tavern or it's, it's a sporting event or it's anywhere else in this life that you in your mind think that that is going to bring you significance, I want you to understand there's nothing more significant than Jesus Christ. And if we harbor ourselves into this world, ultimately what Solomon is telling us is that this leads to our ruin. So he tried these things. He's done, the, he's done the experiment for us. We don't have to ask whether or not it leads to this. This guy, given wisdom by God, is saying this ultimately ends in that way. And then he tried work. And not to get too far into the details, but if you just look at the temple itself, you would be blown away. We saw all the materials that were needed to build it. But just imagine that thing being constructed and everything overlaid with gold and beautiful etchings. And to see, you know, the expanse of these cherubim that are in the most holy place, standing by the Ark of the Covenant, completely overlaid in gold, 15 feet wingspans touching one another, going all the way across, or 20 feet, going all the way across that room. Uh, the, the majesty of what you would have seen and the 
expertise and the skill and the time and the energy that it took place to do that. It actually took them seven years to build the temple. And this may tell you a little bit. After building the temple for seven years, Solomon spent about 12 or 13 years building his own palace to give you a little bit of an idea of maybe where his shift and his focus had gone. But he also hired these laborers and forced them into hard work, almost like what the Israelites had experienced over in Egypt. He did that, and it actually cost them later because of that. I'm saying he spent all of himself. In fact, the word that is used often in the, the Scripture, if you get into some of these modern translations, is the word workaholic. Like he buried himself in these projects over and over, building the walls and terraces of the city. He, he spent a lot of time doing this. All of this is another one of these life experiments to see if it brings you the, the significance that you want. And here's what he says about it. Ecclesiastes 2, 18 through 20. I hated all my toil, <laughs> in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it, catch this, to the man who will come after me. In other words, I'm doing all this stuff, but what am I doing it for? Ultimately, I'm going to die, and what I have here is going to be enjoyed by somebody else. Why am I killing myself over these things if it's just about the here and now? He says, so it's vanity. I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. And here's his conclusion. What are people getting all this life for all their hard work and anxiety? Their days of labor are filled with pain and grief. Even at night, their minds cannot rest. It's all meaningless. Well, that's not to say to not be a hard worker. We've talked about this. Whatever you do, work heartily as under the Lord. It's just saying if you bury yourself in that very temporary thing here in this life, what you get out of it may be wealth, may be promotion, may be position, but what you're ultimately going to get is the death of the grave. When it all shakes out, that's what we get as a result of that. It's not saying that there's not value in work, but it's saying that if that is our whole existence, then it's going to come up into vanity, chasing of the wind. So then Solomon goes to women and you know, he's written what was referred to as the Song of Songs. You guys have heard the phrase, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. The idea is that it's something magnificent and great. It's the greatest of these things. So he's like Barry Manilow and Barry White. I mean, like he's, he's, like, he's got it all going, okay? He is a lyricist. He can write a song that can make the whole world sing, right? He's awesome. And he has the ability to do this, and he wrote this. And we understand this to be the Song of Solomon. And it's in a beautiful, uh, beautifully written book that talks about the love between a man and his wife and it's very sensual and it's very uh, connected to the physical pleasure that that a husband and a wife can enjoy and we read this and it's like you know women can read this and go wow finally a sensitive thinking man who you know loves women and then loves loves I read it and it's just beautiful when you think about it there are expressions in there of just the joy of marriage and here are some of them. You know, it's kind of a going back and forth. The man is saying one thing. The, the wife is saying one thing back. And so the wife says, my beloved is mine and I am his. Isn't that pretty? And he says to her, you have captivated my heart. And there's an expression in here of my dove, my perfect one, is the only one. So as you think about Song of Solomon and you think of the Song of Songs, and it's beautiful and it's so intimate and it's great, and you think, man, this is a one-woman kind of guy. And then you read 1 Kings 11.3, you're like, what in the world is going on? I mean, <laughs> like, can you, can you fathom 
what that's like. I mean, I don't even know how to connect the dots between all of this, you know, like 700 wives. I can't even fathom that, but I have to say that maybe this guy can give us a little insight as you look at his face. This is a guy who has four. I think he had five at one point. This guy has four, and that's the look on his face all the time, okay? Can you imagine that 175 times over with 700 wives, 300 concubines? I, I can't fathom that. I mean, what's Valentine's Day like? Can anybody in the room identify? What, what, what is it like when those Amazon boxes show up at the palace door? Like, what is that like? How do you feed a family of 700 wives and their children and concubines and their children? Well, oddly enough, the Bible gives us a little insight. First Kings 4 says 150 bushels of choice flour, 300 bushels of meal, 10 oxen from the fattening pens, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep or goats, deers, gazelles, roe deer, which I think is a roebuck. I don't even know what that is, and choice poultry. I, I can't fathom what it is, but this is the list of the things that were his daily provisions for his house. Like we, this guy is not who he thinks he, he, he is. He is, he is something, okay? And, and, and what's happening is Solomon has left wisdom land, all right? Even though he's got wisdom, he has not applied those things to himself. So you look at this and, and here's what happens. Ultimately, when you take in all these different mindsets and these thought processes, it begins to impact you and it begins to wear you down, right? Solomon, if he, if he took time and carefully, you know, married every one of those 700 wives. You think about it, he would have two anniversaries a day for every day for the rest of his life. That's, a, that's bizarre to me. But it says his wives shifted his allegiance to other gods, and he was not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord. Verse 6, Solomon did evil in the sight of God. He didn't remain loyal to the Lord. So here, in the midst of all these life experiences and these experiments that he's got going on, tr trust what I'm saying here is he is not just finding out that these things are futile, but he is finding himself walking away from God. That's what life experiments do for us when we're not settled in on the truth of God and pursuing it with all that we've got. We will find ourselves coming into these agreements, into these situations that are no good. Nehemiah even used King Solomon, think about this, as an example of what not to do. As he's chewing out the Israelites for going back into pagan idolatry, he says, hey, did you not learn anything from what Solomon did? Think about how massive and, and amazing the kingdom was, united together, and then this idolatrous behavior causes it to split up and bust into all these different directions, and then it's just problem after problem after problem because Solomon didn't incorporate the wisdom of his life. See, wisdom is not just to be dispensed, to be shared with other people. It's to be internalized. What good does that wisdom do you if you don't apply it to your life and let it guide your steps? So then he moves on to wealth. These are just things that are listed in the scriptures. I don't, you don't have to look very far to see. You know, some suggest that in today's money, something like $2.2 trillion in value would be where Solomon was worth. I mean, he had unlimited resources. He also had the hand of God working with him. He had support. He had people taking care of him. He had forced labor. He had every imaginable thing, right? But he lost perspective. And while we may play games like Monopoly, 
He was living a life of Solomonopoly, wasn't he? He's putting those things. He's risking it all. He's doing all these experiments, and it's taking him further away from God. But often in the accumulation of things and resources, one's real purpose is buried beneath. So he's got everything, right? We can look at him and say there's no need that he has. He has everything that he could have ever wanted. And then he used the resources he had to get whatever else he thought he might want to please himself. And so his world becomes more centric on this life here. And as a result, the purpose for which he was made, the purpose for which he was given, faded away underneath all the pile of those things. Here's what he ultimately says in Ecclesiastes 5 about wealth. Money will never satisfy. The more you have, the more others want. The more you have, the more you can lose. Managing wealth leads to sleepless nights. And ultimately, you can't take it with you. That's kind of a a tough existence, right? As he's going through these experiments. And yet I find myself going back to this guy, Proverbs 4. There's the voice of Solomon. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. While those may be wise words, and while all of us may be able to quote that, it is something different for each of us to apply that to our daily living and the choices that we make every day. So his discovery is this. Everything's a battle between time and futility. And I don't want to read all of it, but I'll just tell you this. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, it's a very familiar passage. Songs have been written about it. And you'll recognize it the moment I begin. Because ultimately, as, as Solomon is doing these life experiments, he's beginning to notice something. It all ends up kind of in the same spot here on this earth. Just for everything, there's a season, a time for every matter under heaven. The time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, a time for peace. Ultimately, all of those things become a very, very predictable life cycle. Folks, life is predictable. The sun rises, the sun sets. Right? We go to work, we earn money, we spend the money, we go back to broke, we go back to earn money, we go spend it, we, and that cycle continues all. And we can see that pattern all the time in our life, right? Uh, you, you can see, like, when, when someone does a bad thing, there's a consequence for it. They learn from it, they change, they come back. And we've seen this pattern with Israel over and over, right? We've seen them do this over and over. And he says, if you really stop and you just pay attention, the stuff that we do here on this earth to make ourselves happy, that we think may be giving us fulfillment and success and all these things, those things ultimately all end the same exact way as we are buried and we're gone. So that's the battle that he's facing between that time and futility. So in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, he finally gets to the point where, hey, let me, let me just be real with you for just a moment. We're all dying. And so he says, remember now the creator and the days of your youth before those evil days come. What he's saying is right now, don't wait till later when things get more difficult and challenging. No, right now, invest your heart fully in trusting God. Because all these experiments that lead to futility are going to ultimately be there. They're, they're, they're futile. They're, they're chasing the wind. They're empty. But if you trust in God, you're going to see better days. He says, here's what's happening in our lives. And folks, I can even feel this coming in on my almost 50-year-old body. The difficult days are coming, the weakened backs, the trembling hands, the teeth ground to nothing. 
the sun rising a little bit earlier every day, we just don't feel like getting out a little bit more. We just feel a little bit more uh, limited in our uh, ability to get out. And we may look around and see some of our family and friends going through this. That white hair and the hair that lets go. Just the days, he calls it evil from a worldly perspective because you, can't, you don't have the vitality you once did. And he said, so knowing that truth, knowing that reality, here is the conclusion to the whole matter. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 and 14 says this. Listen to the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Because God is going to bring all of these things that you see into judgment. And so it's important that we are investing eternally. All the stuff that we invest in now is just here and now. But if we're not prioritizing the spiritual things, we're missing out. So there is Solomon's discovery. Our discovery is simply this. Life is an opportunity. Life without God is empty. And death without God is a full-out calamity. That's the message of Solomon's life. That's the application of everything that he did. It's ultimately, here's a guy older looking back at his life going, these are the things I did. It ultimately ends up in the same spot as all those things are futile. And my life is meant to be serving God and trusting in him. And that is what brings the reward. It's not here. It's much later. So the question to all of us is, how weary are you with this life? How ready are you to invest in eternal things? Because I'm just guessing that we're all overwhelmed at times. I'm guessing we're all like where our backs are breaking. But the reality is, Jesus says this, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me. Learn from me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest unto your souls. You want peace. You want joy. You want fulfillment. Seek spiritual things. And if you're subject to the invitation this morning, I hope you'll come. While together we stand and sing.